Uh, this morning, the passage is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever whatever you did for me, for one of the, the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Well, today we come to the breathtaking description Uh, given to us by Jesus, of what will happen when he, the Son of Man, comes. This is heart-stopping, life-changing, jaw-dropping, a glorious picture. And I'm quite sure that the evil one would love to snatch this word away from us so it doesn't go in. So let's pray that God would help us. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would stifle the hand of the evil one. We pray in the name of Jesus that um, each of us would take on board the message Uh, that Jesus uh, gives us today and we pray that we would be transformed and we would be encouraged to serve him more faithfully and we would give ourselves to it. So please change us, we pray, and may this word take root and bear fruit in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's hard to imagine a more glorious or significant scene than the one Jesus has just described. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And Jesus paints the picture for us so that it would be embedded in our minds. We'd see the vision. Okay. When the Son of Man comes. Now that phrase, the Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel. Uh, It's used by Jesus just in the chapter before, Matthew 24, to describe his coming. But it comes from Daniel chapter 7. where Daniel has a vision of terrifying beasts. These stand for the terrifying kingdoms of this world. But after that, 
There's one who has an eternal kingdom and he is the son of man. He is led into the presence of the ancient of days. He is given authority and glory and sovereign power. And people from all, all languages and nations worship him. And he rules over a kingdom that will never, ever be destroyed. Now in Matthew 25, Jesus takes us to that great moment when the son of man finally comes. And he is seated on his throne and all the nations are gathered before him. In other words, this is the final siren. This is the curtain call for every person, every family, every corporation, every regime, every government. Okay, the curtain is drawn on what we've been doing and it's the final day of reckoning. Everyone will stand before the Son of Man. I want you to see how unashamedly exclusive is this description. No one else is on the throne. Jesus doesn't share it with Buddha or Krishna or Muhammad. Judgment Day, in other words, isn't going to be a sort of panel discussion between the religious leaders. It's not like a UN convention. Only Jesus is on the throne. Where are Buddha and Muhammad? They are standing before him with every other person who has ever lived. And they will have to give an account to the one who is the son of man. The, the one who's called also the shepherd, verse 32, who divides the king, verse 34, and Lord, verse 37. And as it goes on, we're told he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, there are only two groups. It's that extreme. There's no in-betweens. There's no shades of grey. There's not a continual gradation of, you know, going from punishment to, to, to reward. You're either on his right or you're on his left. And it couldn't get more serious, could it? Because he's going to turn to those on his right and they will hear the words, come and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now, there couldn't be more glorious words to hear, could there? And then he'll turn to those on his left and he'll say, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And there couldn't be more horrendous words to hear. And then it's, it will happen. Those on his left will go away to eternal punishment and those on his right will go away to eternal life. It can't get bigger. The outcome is permanent, final, eternal punishment, eternal life. And we also note that it's totally fair. So that even though there's a confusion about the reasoning, when did we see you hungry or, and, and feed you or, or see you thirsty and give you something to drink? Or when didn't we do those things? When it's explained, no one says, oh, well, that's unfair. There's no objection. Everyone is judged on exactly the same basis. How are we judged? By our actions, or more specifically, by how we've treated others. More specifically, how we've treated the least of Jesus' brothers and sisters. To the righteous, Jesus will say, when you fed them, you fed me. When you gave them a cup of water to drink, you, you gave it to me. When you, when you clothed them, when you cared for them, when you, you visited them, when you, you took in the least of these brothers of mine, what you did for them, you did for me. And similarly to those on his left, when, when they were in need, you didn't realise I was in need, but you just walked on by. When, when they were naked, I was naked. I needed clothing. 
I was hungry. I was thirsty when they were thirsty. I, when they were sick, I was sick. When they were in prison, I was in prison and, and needed a visit. But, but you walked on by, you paid no attention. Whatever you didn't do for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did not do for me. The basis of judgment for the peoples of the world is what they did or didn't do for the least of Jesus' brothers and sisters. And such is his identity with them that how people treat them directly impacts on their eternal fate. Okay, wow. Now, understandably, this packs a punch and it unnerves us. So no doubt, right now, we're all running through our own track record in our minds. We're thinking of the opportunities missed, the things we should have done but didn't do. And the things that we have done, we're, we're now recalling, and we're wanting to push them to the top of our CVs and draw a big circle around them. You know, for Christians, uh, this teaching is uh, poses a, a particular problem. It's not that we don't want to hear it. Right? We believe in active faith and we want to be challenged and we need to be. But on the other hand, we, we are wondering, how does this square with the gospel of grace? Because if judgment comes down at the, in the end to how many good works we have or haven't done, where's the assurance? We've just spent a whole term on the topic of assurance. Doesn't this undercut that? Well, there are some classic ways to misunderstand this passage. The first is to go straight to the works and say Jesus is teaching salvation by works. Now, that can't be right. Why not? Three reasons. Number one, uh, it's not taught elsewhere in the Bible. Number two, when Jesus speaks of the least of these brothers of mine, he never refers to the brotherhood of humanity. They could use that phrase to refer to everyone as brothers and sisters, but he doesn't. Jesus, in fact, redefines family to be his disciples. Uh, who are my brother, my sisters, uh, my mothers? Uh, they're those who are listening to me. He redefines family to those who are his disciples. So, thirdly, um, Jesus can't be teaching salvation by works because, here's the main point, after the number 25 comes 26. <laughs> now, I'm not being stupid. After chapter 25, Matthew comes Matthew chapter 26, and in Matthew chapter 26, we find Jesus on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane asking his father, is there any other way that he can save the world aside from having to drink the cup of God's wrath and go, go to the cross? And the answer is no. So that if it was possible that people could be saved by works, the father would have offered it there and then, and Jesus wouldn't have had to go through the suffering of the cross. But there was no other way because he had to go through with it. Okay, the only way people from the nations can be saved is because Jesus died for them out of God's grace. And uh, this news is shared and they believe in it and trust it. Okay, so if it's not salvation by works, how then do we interpret Jesus' teaching in the sheep and the goats? Well, uh, one possible way, which I myself have taught, as I've preached before, is that Jesus is here stressing the necessity of practical love for fellow believers. And so it goes like this. Um, in Matthew 25, Jesus presents three parables. Each of them speak of a division within the disciples. 
in the um, there's the the wise and the foolish virgins in the first one. Then there's the the hard-working servants and the lazy servant in the parable of the talents. And then in the parable of the sheep and the goats, there's a division, the doers and the pretenders, right? And therefore, Jesus is highlighting the need in the third one to show practical love for fellow Christians. Now, there is much in favour of that. It fits. You've got three parables. Um, Jesus teaches this elsewhere. For example, the Sermon on the Mount, Paul teaches it in his uh, letters. Uh, it's a very big theme in the book of James that saving faith will be active faith. It will show itself in deeds, right? Um, but there are problems. There are problems in saying that that is the main point of Jesus' teaching here. What are those problems? Well, for starters, the description of what happens in the sheep and the goats, it's not a parable, it's a description. And what's described there is in a different category altogether from the, the previous two parables in Matthew 25. Those parables do talk of a division within the disciples. There's the wise and foolish virgins. There's the, the three servants, two are hardworking, the third is lazy. But what's described here in the coming of the Son of Man is not about the disciples. It's not, you know, people waiting for the bridegroom to come. It's not servants who've been set to task while their master is away. The group that Jesus is talking about is everyone. It's all the nations. It's all the people who've ever existed. Everyone, all people everywhere. And if it's about our need to show practical love, do we really mean to say that if I have fed that one extra person, visited that one extra person, clothed that one extra person, that that tips me into heaven? And that if I've missed out on that moment, or if I've stupidly walked by, that somehow Jesus' death loses its saving power. Is that what we mean to say? And if it's all about the need to show practical love, do we really mean to say that heaven is going to be something like, you know, that television show, The Good Place, where people really are boasting in heaven about how good they were on earth? Okay, how do we take the sheep and the goats? Obviously, this is important. It's a hard-hitting bit of teaching. Today, I want to suggest that we take a prodigal son approach to the sheep and the goats. Now, I'm assuming that you'll know or be familiar, at least, with the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. OK, most people who hear that parable forget that it's actually a parable about two sons, not just one, but two. OK, and most people think the point is to say if you've wandered away from God and you've treated him badly, then you've, and you've come to your senses, then you need to know that your Father in heaven is waiting for you to come back and he will receive you with open arms when you do so. Now, this is a wonderful point, right? It's the gospel of grace. Um, however, it's not the main point of the parable. Um, it's not wrong, but it's not the main one. Because when you look at the context of who Jesus is talking to and realise he's talking to the Pharisees within earshot of tax collectors and sinners who the Pharisees are looking down on and despising, and then you look at the build-up uh, in the parables before this one, build-up in Luke 15, you've got the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the parable of the two sons, then we see that the main point is really directed to the Pharisees who are like the oldest son in the parable who despises grace and that the tax collectors and sinners, they are like the younger son who doesn't deserve grace, 
but receives it anyway, yet is looked down on by the older ones who shouldn't do that. What am I saying? Okay, I'm saying it's very easy to miss the main point of Jesus' teaching by make a, making a secondary point the main point. And I'm saying what the parable of the two sons or the prodigal son teaches us is that the way you understand the main point is you look at the context and you look at the build-up just beforehand. So if we look at the wider context of the sheep and the goats passage in Matthew 25, we see that the context of this passage is in fact mission. Because if we ask the questions, you know, where else does Jesus speak of the coming of the Son of Man? And where else does he use the same sort of language he uses here of how you've treated them is how you treat me? And where else does Jesus speak of the least of these uh, brothers of mine? The answer is earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 10. If you turn it up, please do it now. Have a look. We discover that Matthew chapter 10 is all about mission, right? This is when Jesus sent his disciples out to take the news of the kingdom out to the Jewish villages, and he gives them authority to teach and to do the things that he had been doing to share in his missions. And then he says, and remember Matthew 25 when I'm reading this, he says, don't take money, don't take provisions. If someone welcomes you, stay with them, accept the food that they give you, accept the drink that they give you. If people don't welcome you, shake the dust of off their feet as a, off your feet as a sign against them. And then in verse 40, he says, whoever receives you receives me. And then he says, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of the least of these because he's my disciple, he will certainly not lose his reward. Right. Okay. In other words, Matthew 10 is the backdrop to understanding Matthew 25. The sheep and the goats passage. Then, still on context, if you look at the very next verse after the sheep and the goats passage, verse 1 of chapter 26, we see that it's moving on to something new. This is now um, Jesus' words to his disciples as he's heading to the cross, which tells us that what Jesus teaches in the sheep and the goats passage in Matthew 25 is Jesus' final words to him, to the, his disciples, before he uh, heads to the cross. And then, of course, you've got in the, the end of Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 28, the Gospel finishes with Jesus sending his disciples out again, not just to Israel, but to the nations. And it's the nations who are in view in Matthew 25, sheep and the goats passage. What all that tells us is that the context for the sheep and the goats passage is mission and his disciples reaching out with the news of the kingdom uh, to reach people. Now, that's the context. I want us to think now about how chapter 25 builds. As I've said, and I've taught this myself, it's usual to see three parables, each about Jesus coming, giving three separate points on how we're to be ready. And I guess it wouldn't really matter what order they came in. They happen to come in this order. But the important thing is not to miss any one point, but to take all three together and to use them for ourselves. So the parable of the wise and foolish virgins is about cultivating our own spiritual readiness. The parable of the talents is about kingdom fruitfulness. And the third parable, usual interpretation, is our need to show practical love 
for Jesus' followers. Okay, now the trick is that in coming to Matthew 25 again, this passage, uh, and looking at it again, I think you'll see that when you think about the whole of Matthew 25 together, it's not just that the three different teaching points are about Jesus coming, it's that they build on one another. They're connected. The parable of the wise and foolish maidens is about the need for us each to cultivate our own spiritual readiness before Jesus comes. We, that's how we get ready. We walk with him. We attend to our relationship with him. We grow deeper in him. We strive to be faithful to him. We pray to him, right? We're walking with him like this. The parable of the talents is about using what we've been given, our talents, our money, our opportunities, um, our relationships, and putting these things to work so that they can yield a kingdom profit. Um, so that when Jesus comes, we can show him the fruit of our labours and we can receive his, his commendation. But there's a sting in that parable, isn't there? There's a warning. Don't be like the third servant. The third servant who was paralysed by fear, which Jesus, the master in the parable, then says it's not really fear, it's wickedness. It's laziness. Now, why were the first two servants productive and the third one lazy and unproductive? I take it, putting the whole thing together, that it's because the first two servants, well, they are like the wise maidens. They, they've already attended to their spiritual readiness. They are walking with Jesus. So that when they hear that they've got to get to work, they think, well, yeah, no problem. And they get to work. Um, whereas the third servant, why is he lazy? Because he's like the foolish virgins. He hasn't attended to his spiritual readiness. His relationship with Christ is a sham. And so therefore he says, well, I think you're a hard man. And he pre pretends to hide behind his fear. But the reality is he's lazy. Now, in that second parable, and we're thinking about the third servant, he does voice a fear and it's repeated twice. And that caught my attention. That means we need to think carefully about this fear. And the fear is voiced at as this, he said, Master, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. And I thought about that. What's he really saying? You're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown. So you, you, take, you take the yield, but you didn't do the work. And you gather where you haven't scattered the seed. So you harvest, but you, yeah, you didn't do the work. What's he saying? You want the profit, but you don't care about the worker. You want the fruit, but you haven't done the work. You don't care about the worker. Now, if that's what he's saying, we can understand the point, because fruitful work does involve cost. It involves sacrifice. And in Matthew 10, Jesus is upfront about it. You know, he sends his disciples out, and, and they're to be like the the first two servants in the second parable, you know, who yield a fruit. But he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. It's going to be hard. He said, all people will hate you because of me. You know, he said, if they hate, if they hate me, they'll, they'll hate you because of me. And you know that if you're active in trying to share Jesus with others, there's a cost. 
And it can be so easy, can't it, to give way to a kind of paralyzing fear, that fear of the third servant that says, Jesus, I think you're hard. You just want the profit. You don't care about the worker. Now, putting the whole lot together, I think it's to address that fear that paralyzes us from getting involved in kingdom work. That fear that puts the handbrake on us stepping up to serve. That fear that says, I'll live for now, not for any profit that comes when the, son, when the master returns. That fear is what Jesus wants to address, that fear that he is hard and he doesn't care about the worker. He addresses that in his teaching on the sheep of the goats and what will happen when he returns. And if the claim is you don't care about the workers, effectively, in this description of the sheep and the goats, he's saying you could not be more wrong. I do care. When you reach out with the news of the gospel, I take note of how each person responds to you, how well they do or don't receive you. And if you've suffered in my name as the least of my disciples, you are going to have a day of vindication when it will be declared before the world and all the world will see um, that it matters to me and people's, people, people's eternal destiny will hang on it. It matters that much to me. Everyone will see how they did or didn't treat you matters much. That what they did or didn't do to you, they did or didn't do to me. So much does it matter that the eternal destiny of the nations is going to hang on it. So if you're thinking, I don't care about the workers, the least of my disciples, please know you could not be more wrong, says Jesus. I'm telling you this so you see I do care and that you will have your moment of vindication where those who treated you well will be rewarded and those who, who haven't, they will be punished and it will be on them. Now, this is encouraging, isn't it? When you or I, as Jesus' disciple, when we reach out with a message um, of Jesus to someone and they receive you well and they treat you well, Jesus is saying, how they've treated you is how they've treated me. They're going to receive my commendation. And if we reach out with the news of Jesus to others and they push us back in our face and they reject us and they ridicule us, Jesus says, what you've done to them, you've done to me, and they will receive not commendation but condemnation from Jesus. So it's not the case that, when you think about it like this, that the people in Matthew 25 are saved by works. Now, why is that? Because when you put that together with Matthew 10, which is where Jesus sends out the disciples, there we read, Jesus is very clear, if they accept you, the messenger, that's because they've accepted the message. And if you accept the message and the messenger, you've accepted the one who sent the messenger, which is me. And if they accept me by accepting the message and the messenger, then they have accepted the one who sent me, which is the father. Flip it on its head. If they reject you and I sent them, they reject me. And if they reject me, they've rejected God. And it'll come out on the last day. If someone is on Jesus' right, if they are amongst the sheep, it will be because they have accepted the gospel when they accepted the messenger, Jesus' disciples. And if someone is on Jesus' left, 
It's because they rejected the gospel when they rejected Jesus' disciples. Now, if this is the right way to understand the passage, this means the description of Jesus coming here is the ultimate mission encouragement. It's really encouraging. So Jesus is speaking to our fears, right? And he's saying, if you're paralysed, or if at least you're hesitant in not wanting to put your hand up for kingdom service, or maybe you used to, but now you've lost your nerve, or maybe you're tired and you just don't want to endure and keep going, and you think Jesus is a hard taskmaster, then Jesus is saying effectively, nothing matters more to me and how people receive you when you go about my business. How they treat you is how they treat me, and I take notice. And if you've been hard done by, there will come a day when the world will see it, and it'll be clear to everyone that if they've been hard on you, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. And if people have received you and treated you well, that was exactly the right thing to do. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm not, I'm, I do care about the worker. I'm not hard on you. But I do know there's going to be cost and it's going to be difficult. But all the cost, all the pain, all the hardship that you may endure um, for doing my business, um, all of that will be worth it. There will be a day of vindication. And I take note. I take note of how much you do. I take note of the cost. And I take note of what people's reaction is to you. So if you're a student at high school and you're not ashamed of Jesus and you've stuck up as a Christian and you get it every single day, the taunts, the ridicule, people despising you, friends despising you, or just sticking the knife in. If you're, if you're a spouse married to a non-Christian spouse and you walk on eggshells every day because you're, you're trying to model Christ to them but you're waiting for them to stick the knife in, and ridicule you. If you're, you know, the, the person in a hostile work environment who is hostile to Christians, if you're the person here who's daring to try and share Christ with your family and break those unwritten family rules, which is you must never mention the name of Jesus while we're here, but you go against the grain and you're trying to get Christ out and, and people ridicule you and they push you around it. Jesus takes note of this and you will have your day of vindication, right? Now, I know that you're doing this so that people will be amongst the sheep and you don't want them to see them condemned. But also, also, you need to know that Jesus cares for you and he'll vindicate you on that last day. Okay, what's this mean for us? Some of us are thinking about how we can serve when we come back. Uh, putting up your hand to serve on teams, kids' ministry, cleaning, um, pastoral care, welcoming, youth ministry. You're thinking about how to use your talent, the gifts, the time, the opportunities that God has given you. Some people aren't at that point. You don't step up for service. Why don't you step up for service? It's not because you can't do anything. It's because you can't be bothered. You might be that lazy servant. Now, if that's you, then you need to pay attention to the first parable and attend to your own spiritual readiness. Stop being a sham Christian. You need to get your relationship with Christ right. You need to start praying. You 
You need to repent of your sins. You need to spend time in the Bible. You need to walk with him. Some of us are thinking further. Um, they are thinking beyond our church going back. They're thinking, how can I serve on sea camp? <laughs> Cam and Maren are thinking, um, how can we serve in Namibia and applying to CMS? Okay. Well, where are you up to? Here are two simple questions I think we should ask at the moment. First of all, before restrictions lift and while we're still doing online church, how can we maximise our time? How can we serve Christ now? Is there someone you can invite to online church, for example? Secondly, um, when we get back to a relaunch, how can you serve there? How can you be about kingdom work? It may be that you can use your time now to prepare for that, for example, by inviting non-Christians over and having a meal with them. And friends, family, neighbours, work colleagues, invite them into your house. Show them hospitality. It may be that that will work. So that when we relaunch, then you're in a position to say, I've got a relationship with you. Look, why don't you come along? That could be it. The encouragement from today's passage is do not be that fearful third servant in the second parable. Take the risk. Take the risk. And if someone treats you badly, it, it matters to Jesus and you will be vindicated. He cares for you. How people treat you is how they treat him. Well, there's not going to be any bigger day than the day that Jesus has spoken to us about. It will be a day of final division, permanent outcome. And it is worth us, brothers and sisters, giving ourselves, knowing that that day is coming, so that through our actions now, by God's grace, for God's glory, on that day, when the Son of Man comes, there may be more people in that group who are the sheep on the Son of Man's right hand because of our activity than if we had done nothing. That's the goal. That's the goal. Take the encouragement. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we would be about the work of the Son of Man so that when he comes, there would be more people amongst the sheep and we thank you for the encouragement that it is worth taking the risk and it is worth bearing the cost of service because great and none greater can be his words of encouragement and vindication on that last day. In Jesus' name, amen.